The following episode of the 9pm edict contains information about things that happen under the water, some of which are a bit scary, but not any bad language, for a change. Tuesday the 8th of November 2022. It's finally time to talk about submarines and my special guest in the spring series today is defence analyst H.I. Sutton, the man behind Covert Shores, the blog, the books, the YouTube channel and more. In this episode, we discuss the claim that Australia's planned new submarines will be obsolete before they're even built because, you know, drones. Yeah, I I think such an absolute statement is not at all realistic. We hear why nuclear submarines are better than conventional subs. The big one is that they've got a lot of excess power and that can be translated into computing. And we learn why living on a submarine is really tough. Because if you're under the ocean, you don't have any social media. You're cut off from the world. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. This is the 9pm underwater doomsday conversation with H.I. Sutton. Well, Mr. H.I. Sutton, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, as you know, Australia's planned new submarine fleet, if uh, planned is too ambitious a word for the process our end, it's controversial. First, we were buying from Japan, then we were buying from France, making both those countries unhappy because then we said, we're going to buy nuclear-powered submarines from the US or the UK uh, under the AUKUS agreement. Well, whatever happens, it's going to be you know, $100 billion or whatever, which presumably means it'll end up being $200 billion, the most expensive defence project Australia has ever seen. But today, I want to roll back to the basic questions. A friend of the potty and Kath said, so give me the lowdown on submarines. Do we really need them? And I thought, well, need is one of those tricky words, and then really need becomes even trickier. And before we can answer that, I think we have to say, look, what do submarines actually do? Let's start there. In this, the year 2022, what is the job or what are the jobs of submarines? Yeah, there's, they're very versatile platforms and their jobs will vary. From an Australian Navy perspective, they'll vary depending on whether you're in peacetime or wartime. Mm. And they are useful in peacetime and they're useful for deterring people and keeping the peace. And of course, they're useful in wartime. And and you go further to say in other people's wars or your own wars. And uh, yes. So the roles are quite diverse, and they're you know the the ones that are listed um, that I you know I think you're familiar with intelligence gathering, sinking other submarines, sinking other warship or warships, launching some sort of land attack missiles, special forces. I'd add a few that don't really get talked about so much. Um, the deterrence factor of them, the value of them by having such a powerful conventional weapon, there's a conventional deterrence there. And then also the political messaging type uses, you know, visit, you know, port visits and things like that and building stronger um, links with allies and sending a message to potential adversaries. I did see, uh, there's a lovely list, and I've, I've linked to it on the web podcast website. Regular listeners know I, I have far too many notes on the website. But uh, uh, the Australian Defence Force Academy, ADFA, had a nice little article on, you know, 
why are submarines so important? And that traditional torpedoing ships thing, anti-surface warfare, was really way down the list. And I saw, yes, surveillance and intelligence gathering was at the top, then special forces deployment and so on and so forth. In that context of uh, Australia's needs, we, uh, we, we do know already that Australian submarines probably spend some time in the South China Sea uh, doing that intelligence gathering. That mm-hmm. certainly is likely, isn't it? I think it's reasonable. Certainly in previous times it was it was done and it was very valuable. And the, the intelligence gathering is valuable to Australia. It's also valuable commodity within Five Eyes and, and sharing with allies as well. Um, so it's got some uh, political usefulness. The, the list, though, the order that people put the list on the website, I think, may have some political or or someone doing, you know, giving the list in the order that they, they feel or that people want to hear it. I wouldn't necessarily put them in the same order. And again, in wartime, certain things like sinking other people's ships comes very high up the list. Um, and things like special forces might come much lower down the list. So it's it's tricky to say what order they're in. It depends what's useful. The, what it does say to you, though, is that they're very versatile. They are... They have strengths and weaknesses like everything. They don't fully compensate. You couldn't only have submarines and not have service vessels. But with submarines, they bring a lot to the table. So when we're talking about intelligence gathering and surveillance, I mean, is it just watching shipping movements or are there other things that 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 might entail? A lot of it might be that, but I think you know, in the modern world, a lot of it is also electronic and signals intelligent and communications intelligence, um, radars and so on. And so a lot of it will be sniffing things out, both above in the air, above the surface and also underwater. A lot of the intelligence data might even be quite, quite boring to the average person and not realize the value of it. Um, it's not just periscope. Uh, pictures. Can you give some examples? Yeah, abs- absolutely. I, I switch it to something that I saw in the news, um, and it reminded me a few years ago, not very long, maybe one year ago, China um, was releasing a lot of underwater drones, gliders, they were calling them, um, into the Indian Ocean, not so far away from Australia. Also of interest, obviously, to India and any other country around the Indian Ocean. And they, I wrote about it at the time and discussed the data they were gathering. So what do those types of drones gather? They are likely taking notes on the salinity of the water. And what we term in the water column, like how deep different types of, how much salt there is in the water at different temperatures, and the variance of temperatures and potentially recording the um, the background noise of the ocean and, and things like this. And it's very valuable scientific data. It's, it's interesting if you're planning fishing, um, for example. Um, it's interesting if you're measuring global warming or any sort of of the multitude of sort of scientific topics that legitimately governments and, and academic institutions are involved in. But recently there was a paper which highlighted the obvious that they're also very useful for submarines and planning submarine operations. And and China, there was a Chinese paper that um, 
Colin Coe, if you follow on, you know, he's on Twitter and plays a professor in Singapore, quite notable. He was, he highlighted it, um, but it connected back. So China is, for example, gathering data, not very far from Australia on the underwater environment with, you know, lots of data around how much salt there is at different level depths in this part of the ocean and to an average person it sounds like i say i think it sounds boring it's a question why is that so big deal and the big deal is that they can better predict how and when they'll be able to detect submarines and things like that and they can start to model the underwater environment and their submarine operations will benefit from they'll know what depth to sail you know to sail at and things like this to avoid detection for example and of course you can switch it around. That be equally relevant to Australia, and so the the point is, a lot of the intelligence a submarine would gather, or a drone, or a surface vessel, is in a sense purpose agnostic. It can be used for scientific, legitimate scientific reasons, but it's also very powerful for submarine warfare in ways that people don't realise. That reminds me that during the Cold War, the submarines, uh, Soviet and American and presumably British and others, uh, were measuring the, the, the thickness of the ice around mm. the North Pole so that they knew where were the safe spots to launch ballistic missiles from so they could crash through the ice. But, of course, that means we now have this long-term record of the Arctic ice field, and I believe... Uh, some of it was declassified at some point. I know that uh, uh, Barack Obama declassified all manner of uh, mm. scientific information that had been collected by submarines and other things. So that that is fascinating. Now, I don't want to turn this into kind of a train-spotting exercise about how far different torpedoes can go and how far missiles can go and all that. Uh, but more broadly, this it's no longer watching... Uh, dust boat and seeing those torpedoes run and all that i think i think we can assume it's a bit more sophisticated now can we we can i mean that's a brilliant film i'd say and in some ways that might still you know in in from a human perspective that might still be quite relevant the torpedoes go a lot further and the ones that for example australian submarines um carry are very sophisticated and they're guided by the submarine, typically wire-guided. And if, if that breaks, they can um, operate autonomously as well. I think in the future, so the torpedoes are going to get even longer range and start to blur the line between what we'd call a torpedo and what we call an underwater drone. That is definitely the direction. Um, but yeah, torpedoes have become very expensive, very sophisticated, and extremely um, potent. And we haven't got a lot of experience of them being used. Um, the one that was used in the Falklands War, which now is a long time ago, but is in the age of modern torpedoes. Good heavens, it's 40 was, years ago. That is... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and the torpedo they used was essentially a World War II one. Um, they used a really old one. But the best examples in, in North Korea and South Korea a few years ago... Um, maybe 10 years ago now, the North Koreans, who are definitely nowhere near as sophisticated as the Australian Navy, for example, used a torpedo that broke a ship in half and was in many respects a modern torpedo. And even the North Koreans can make torpedoes like that. Um, So they're they're incredibly effective. The big 
question for Australia's uh, new... Well, one of the big questions is now that we've made the decision, it seems, although it's not official yet, there's still, I think, March next year is when we will get the, the final choice or whatever. Nuclear-powered. Now, obviously controversial. What are the advantages of nuclear power? Yeah, there's a, there's a few advantages. Um, the very obvious one is range. And, and that is a big deal, particularly to Australia, um, but in, in general. And uh, it would allow Australian submarines to take the long way round um, between South China Sea and Australia or stay on station much longer and so on. So that's the main thing. I'll just say, for those of you who don't have a map in front of us, the short way round is having to go from the current submarine base, which is uh, near Perth in Western Australia, mm. and up threading your way through the islands of Indonesia. Exactly, up to through Indonesian to sovereign waters, yeah. So and, and if Indonesia said no, presumably. Yeah. yeah. But it's also their, it's their water. If they said no, just like Turkey has said no to submarines passing into the Black Sea, uh, Russian submarines, for example, um, related to the current war imagine a scenario where where indonesia says no no submarines are going to travel through our waters um for this war yeah and for example so it's there's political as well as tactical and strategic implications of these narrow choke points um I did see, though, in a Bond, James Bond film recently, they did take a Russian submarine through the Bosphorus, right through the, the centre of Konstant. Well, it's not called Constantinople anymore, nah. is it? It's called Istanbul. Um, yeah, and that's I thought, a great movie. Yeah, it is, it is. But I thought, yeah, that's not going to happen. I, I looked up a chart and went, no. it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit shallow there, a bit shallow and a bit narrow. Well, yeah, the, the, the Turkish Navy would be able to stop anyone physically, yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so range for the nuclear submarine. And perhaps the obvious one is it doesn't have to surface or put up a snorkel to run diesel engines and so on. So there. Yeah. But what else? There's a couple of the, the ones that people don't think of, they're faster generally, um, and they can maintain that speed for a long time, um, more or less indefinitely. They can trans. So. It's not just the the range, but also the speed of of that range that of the transit, so they can get to where they need to go um, comparatively quickly, much much quicker than a, a diesel electric submarine of any type. Even you know, regardless of battery technology, regardless of things called AIP, which is air independent power, do you hear about? None of them compare to a nuclear submarine. But with that um, that speed, they can get away from things much easier. But also, they can, for example, and we've, I know that there's some funny clips from Australian TV about pump jets. So they, they can have different propulsion at the back, which is optimized for a higher speed. Um, so they can be quieter at higher speeds. But also, the big one is that they've got a lot of excess power. And that can be translated into computing. And the main the main way of submarines knowing what's around them is through passive sonar. And the listening devices are more or less equal for any submarine, um, but the ability to process that data and and to get very sophisticated fine-tuning, it's there's a massive advantage to having the raw power of a nuclear submarine. And that power is always there. It's not like 
uh, search capability. So they make much better um, anti-submarine warfare. In the future as well, I think active sonar becomes more in, more important. They also obviously have a lot more power to um, to you to create a active sonar. That's like putting noise out, which then bounces It's your old back. classic ping sound, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it wouldn't Is sound that actually like ping, the sound? I, oh. No. 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 <laughs> okay. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> like so many things in the movies, it's just not quite real, is it? <laughs> no, well, not anymore. The um, But the principle's there. You know, it's like a mm. bat. You, you make... You know, you make a sound and then you hear it come back. Um, the disadvantage is people can hear you twice as far away than you can hear them because the sound's got to go back and forth. But unfortunately, because submarines are becoming quieter and quieter, the reliability of the passive sonar is decreasing. Um, so you, it's sort of the circle of life. You come back to the original uh, um, active sonar. But potentially not from the submarine itself it might actually deploy that on a uh you know on an uncrewed underwater vehicle or something like that so it's not to compromise its own position by broadcasting for example right now i was told ages ago that one of the downsides of nuclear submarines is that they're noisier they're bigger they're complicated they have all these pumps while a diesel electric a conventional sub when submerged it's just a battery into an electric motor and, mm-hmm. and quite, quite. Well, and the air conditioning and the crew walking around and mumbling and all of that. Is that, or was that ever the case, that the, the nukes were much noisier? And and the second part is, is that still the case? Um, there's an element of, a thread of truth to it. Um, in the right circumstances, a conventionally powered a battery submarine is going to be quieter logically um particularly if it's just sitting on the bottom in in the suitable depth of water doing nothing and just the minimum power to run its systems for life support and and listening the but they can't operate like that for very long and they can't that's not everything a submarine needs to do so it's always been about context nuclear the first generation nuclear subs were very very noisy but it was realized, and it was realized first in the West. So you hear this story a lot because in the Cold War, Western submarines were, were quieter than Russians or Soviet submarines, and that's true. Um, but it, as people realized that how much noise you made was a problem, they found ways to make them quieter. And nowadays, the quietest nuclear submarines are going to be exceptionally quiet. And and in many cases, you know, again, it's context, in many cases, quieter than the diesel electric ones, especially at high speeds. Um, also they have an advantage because they, they're generally bigger submarines and they can be bigger submarines and it counterintuitively, the bigger the submarine does not mean the easier it is to find in general, it's going to be harder to find because you can put a lot more physical space into making it quieter. You can, right. um, and they have many layers of that, but it's also sophisticated. The new problem is that if you're too quiet, then you're the, the famous hole in the ocean. You know, you're, you've got to get the right level of noise. And the ocean has a background level of noise and you get diminishing returns as you get closer and closer to to that. And submarines, so some of the stats you hear about, apart from the fact the reality is all classified, of course, but a lot of it's a little bit of a so what. Um, the short answer is that nuclear submarines now are quiet enough that it's not a big deal. 
Interesting. What about the heat? Nuclear reactors are all about the heat, and that heat has to go somewhere. Um, well, the excess heat has to go somewhere. Nothing's perfect. There's going to be heat yep. leakage. Again, I heard that was a thing, even to the point that you could not have a nuclear submarine just sitting on the bottom too long because it would suck up too much rubbish into its uh, cooling yeah. water intakes. Again, yeah, is that a generational thing? Partly it's a generational thing. There's Again, there's elements of truth to it. Um, I I wouldn't put too big a, a deal on that. And this is not inherent of nuclear submarines, but <coughs> – sorry. It's not inherent of nuclear submarines, but in general, they're also built to dive deeper, and that's going to be less of an issue with heat and so on. Um, when you're very near the surface, potentially, it could be a way of detecting them at short range. Um, right. The – there's a lot to it. There's different ways of cooling them. They've gone to, to natural cooling a long time ago. The pumps was what people used to talk about, you know, because they've constantly got to run pumps to pump the water, at least the earlier ones. Um, a lot of these things can are now being dealt with. And, of course, they put a lot of effort into quieting them. Mm. Interesting stuff. So, all right, this is, this is what I was looking for in this conversation, H. It's, it's the matter of... Our knowledge, my knowledge, is way out of date because it's all Cold War era uh, stories. I have to say, the Hunt for Red October at this point, and all of those things. It's but that's a brilliant movie. Yes, I th- see. There you go. Um, we did mention in passing AIP, Air Independent Power or Air Independent Propulsion. How do they work? Do you want the nerd answer that will confuse people, or do you want a basic answer? Let's go a quick basic one, but yeah, let's have a yeah. bit of nerd. Yeah. We've got the, a nerd the answer quick, here. The quick basic one is that is any type of power source that can run your electric motor while you're underwater that isn't your batteries um, and doesn't need air, oxygen from the air. So you're independent of the air, as in the surface of the sea. Because typical diesel electric submarines, if they want to generate power to um, to run the engine, to run an electric motor and/or charge the batteries, they're running their diesels, and they can only do that if they come up to service. Some submarines do carry enough oxygen to run the diesels submerged, or they used to. That's a pretty poor method because you it doesn't you can't carry enough for it to be efficient. So people came up with other methods, and Stirling engines are quite popular. That that's quite a cool thing if you just. Google Sterling engines, but nowadays fuel cells as well. Um, and there's a few other methods, uh, f- chemicals and, and so on. The thing it does is it allows a submarine to operate underwater much, much longer. So it goes from being a couple of days to being weeks. Um, and there's they're getting better and better, and they, they're overcoming lots of the issues of the first generation of AIP submarines, but it's always been an advantage. It's very different from nuclear power, though, because although nuclear power, you could theoretically, you could say that's AIP, but no one, let's not mix that up. Let's not play that game. No no one in submarine world would say that. The AIP submarines, the trade-off is that it's very, very little power you'll run you've only just got enough power to run your electric motor and and your sort of what they call hotel load that's everything else um 
Lighting, air conditioning. Yes, e- yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. And air conditioning is a big deal in, in hot, warmer waters and takes a lot of power. So they're running very slow. So it's, it increases their on station and their patrolling, but at a slow speed. Right. And it what it doesn't do that people imagine it does, and you see this written a lot, is it's generally not used to charge your batteries. That's not what it's for. You, that's oh. quite inefficient if you think about it because – if you put the power into a battery and then put it into electric motor, you're always losing something. Every step you lose stuff. And uh, so you just run the electric motor direct, save your batteries and only charge your batteries. If you, if there's a tactical reason to do that, um, the nerd answer, and this is, mm-hmm. I find quite interesting is we used to call it air independent propulsion. And this is from a different time. This is from world war two. And just after <laughs> okay, 1950s. I thought my knowledge was a bit out of date, but now it's no, people still 70 use it, years out of yeah, date. Yeah, no, no, people oh, okay. still use it. Um, but what air independent propulsion was, it was actually all about speed and it was noisy as hell. And uh, people were using quite dangerous chemicals mostly, hydrogen peroxide, oh, wow. um, which had a tendency to blow up. Um, a few submarines had that problem. Um, but it, it was all about speed. And what they'd do is use the the power of the engine, if you like, the um, to drive the propeller, the, the screw at the back directly. Whereas nowadays, just like modern diesel electric submarines, they figured out it's much better to drive an electric motor, so generate electricity, put it to an electric motor, and the electric motor drive the propeller. And that that is much quieter, mainly. Because you um, don't have a gearbox, presumably. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh-huh. now you've got brushless, you know, you've got less, there's technologies that come along to make electric motors much better. Um, and that is why we call it air independent power. But even people who are literally the captain or crew of an AIP submarine, depending on their country, depending on the Navy, they might still use the term air independent propulsion. So it's really just, uh, yeah, if you want to sound like, you know what you're talking about, say air independent power and then people give you a strange look and then you can explain. <laughs> Excellent. Noted. Well, on on that point, we'll uh, take a brief break and do the housekeeping. Not a huge amount of housekeeping this time. As you may have noticed, uh, things are happening at Twitter. Uh, things are happening at Twitter so fast uh, that I haven't had time to really keep track of them all, even in the podcast that I posted only the other day, and it's already kind of getting out of date. But if you're worried that Twitter is going to collapse, and uh, you know, as you know, my, my primary social media presence is on Twitter, uh, and you'd like to stay in touch, I have a plan B. I don't know exactly what the plan B will be, but I have a kind of plan B point A, which is to uh, to keep track of you people. Um, so if you would like to stay in touch, even if Twitter implodes, I am collecting email addresses only for this purpose. Uh, when you go to this link, you'll see a form and it'll explain how I'll do this. But if you go to the 9pmedic.com slash Twitter recovery as one word, or stillgarian.com slash Twitter recovery, the same place. It's linked from stillgarian.com anyway. The 9pmedic.com slash Twitter recovery. You'll see the form. You'll see the rules. I won't give the data to anyone else. I won't spam you beyond that. 
all of that. Just in case you want to stay in touch. Uh, I do have a Mastodon instance, which I, I've only just set up and not done anything with yet. And uh, you will find uh, those details on that form too. Uh, there's one episode left in the spring series, or one special guest episode left, not locked in yet, but uh, that will uh, be recorded and appear before the end of the month because, of course, that's the end of spring. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the 9pm Spring Series crowdfunding campaign. It's people like you who make this possible. Uh, and for this episode in particular, I'd like to say thanks to Ian Kath, as previously mentioned, and also Rowan Gladman, uh, who suggested I should get a couple of, uh, quote, amazing milkshakes from Kickaboom, which uh, is a cafe in Glenbrook uh, in the lower Blue Mountains, so not far from where I am. I, I had a look at their website. They do sound quite lovely, so I might check that out. Thanks, Rowan. And if you would like to join those people who help make this podcast possible, I would really love that. Tell your friends, obviously, about the podcast if you like it. But if you or they would like to uh, actually open the wallet, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedict.com slash tip. Uh, and now back to the submarines. Well, it's time for some trigger words, H. This, uh, as regular listeners will know, is the glass jar of transparency. In there, all those folded up pieces of paper contain a word that a supporter not only sent in, they paid for in the hope that it'll trigger a conversation. And we, usually we draw them out at random there and some of them even say, oh, I don't know, just choose a random word from the dictionary. But we won't do that today because we have two words sent in especially for you, H. And one's from... Uh, Oliver Townsend, who says, submariners. So I'm guessing he's wanting to trigger a conversation about either the kind of people we find on submarines or what or what their life is like. Yeah, and it's an interesting... I was, I'm, I, was, I was waiting to see whether you'd say submariner or submariner. I oh. say submariner as well because I'm yes. British. And, uh, yes. and I guess Australia submariner. Yeah, uh, Americans, submar I think, say submariner. Um, they do, they do. Yeah, um, but... Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because we're at a time of change and about half the navies in the world that have submarines, which is more than ever before, um, uh, more countries have submarines, says, about half of them allow females to be submariners now. And uh, Australia was one of the first, um, yes. not the first, a few Scandinavian countries beat them to it, but uh, but was among the first in 1999. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but that's going by memory. Mm -hmm. um, and but the new submarines that are now entering service that have been built in the last five to, to 10 years are the first submarines that are really being built with that in mind. And um, so mixed gender crews. And there, there are definitely, you know, story, you know, there's some pretty bad stories in some navies and, you know, it's a topic. Um, it doesn't always work, sadly, in that sense, you know, in the obvious sense, but it, it should, and it's getting better, and and it makes a lot of sense, and um, so that's that's one big change. But in parallel with that, a lot one another reason submarines are getting bigger is because the quality of life on a submarine is getting better, 
and people expect more space and more privacy and mm. um in some submarine you know you're starting to see single cabins or, or certainly smaller um you know instead of having a 20 person um sort of sleeping arrangement instead of hot bunking hot bunking is when you don't have your own bunk you share it with another person um and then uh, it's usually one person because you're the the different um sort of uh on and shifts, off duty working shift yeah, exact yeah. shifts exactly yeah watches they call them but yeah mm. um <laughs> and there's several people listening now go guys you, you know they're called watches <laughs> they're, they're, they're navies yeah but, you've seen the films they're what yes. yeah, on watch yeah he's on watch um yeah he's uh, <laughs> but it's so it's it's, get, it's changing um i, I food, will but, say just yeah. sorry to interrupt but i will mm. say if you're ever in san francisco dear people the uss pampanito is tied up at one of the wharfs there that is a world war ii fleet submarine and you can you can wander th- through it just self-guided it's just it's just there i was there on a on a like a rainy tuesday afternoon in the off season and I was the only person walking through this boat. And two things happened. One is, of course, in the, the cruise quarters, they're, they're just stacked in like, well, you know, bunk beds, but not even the, the space you would have as a child, really. Um, stacked in 30 or something in, in one room. Um, but the other one I found, and this, uh, this goes perhaps to some other aspects of the experience, it was quiet except for the, the waves gently lapping and I thought, here I am in this steel tube and it's just me and it's quiet and I can just hear the water lapping and I got on the edge of like almost panic and I'm not claustrophobic, but it felt really uncomfortable mm. being in there. Um, is that... Still the case, I mean, as, as we've said before, uh, Dust Boat, which uh, uh, I'll explain in a minute, but Yope David has the next question coming up, and he said, I hope that, like, unlike most English speakers, you will not pronounce it like a piece of footwear, <laughs> but it's a Dust Boat. <laughs> Thank you, Yope. I've got to be um, careful. <laughs> yeah, it, we'll see how you go. We'll see how you go. Um, what is life like? Uh, I mean... You mentioned that the, the, yeah. the nukes in particular have, have more space, more power. Mm. Um, the space must be the thing, but you know they, they don't have a tiny little kitchen gallery. They seem to have actually a mess room and so on. Mm. Yep. Yeah, a lot of even – I mean, there's, comp, there's not contradictions, but there's, there's a range. Um, the accommodation is getting a lot better for sure, but – Right as of this moment, certainly in the Australian Navy, like nearly every Navy, you've got people sleeping in a torpedo room or the bomb shoppers, you might call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so sleeping on or, or among torpedoes. And when there's a war and you want to stock your full load of torpedoes, that's a problem. These guys have to find other places to sleep. Um, but it's, you know, I've I've never done it, but you can imagine that's, you know, you move up to to being in those rooms with 30 people and then you move up to being in a room with five people and you know um and only the captain really gets his own cabin or her own cabin um it's getting better the one of the most interesting things also is that people our life outside of a submarine has changed drastically how many of us i you know i'm old enough to remember before mobile phones and certainly normal Mm -hmm. people having mobile phones and then you had you know these 
those little Nokias or whatever. Now I'm addicted to my smartphone, like nearly mm-hmm. everyone. Like everyone else, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like everyone else, except submariners. Because if you're under the ocean, you don't have any social media. You're cut off from the world. So regardless of how comfortable they make it, regardless of the camaraderie and all the reasons to be a submariner, it's also quite a shock um, and more so than previous generations um, because we've come to And that is a problem for recruiting and retaining submariners in different navies. Um, and then some navies go further um, that even when you not on the submarine, you're not allowed to use social media because of security risk or whatever. Um, but, but yeah, it's a, it's a different life and it's a, it's probably not for everyone. That's no surprise. It's quite elite. Um, I imagine it's very rewarding. You certainly talking to people at submariners, of course they, they tell me it's very rewarding. Um, and they get to do stuff that a, they can't tell you about, but B you mm. wouldn't dream of. And, uh, and that's pretty cool. But but it's a big sacrifice in life. And, it, and the longer the patrols, being away from family, things like that, it's still, it's going to be one of the more, more extreme lives and, uh, that you can lead, certainly in peacetime. Uh, I, I, we already have, uh, for the Royal Australian Navy, we already have like a serious recruit, recruitment mm. problem. Uh, for submariners, uh, you, if if you're interested in in joining the navy, though, uh, there is a significant pay bonus if you <laughs> qualify and go to uh, the submarines. Uh, but yes, uh, how that will uh, work when we move from six of the Collins class to uh, twelve of the new ones, whatever that uh, might be, be interesting to see. So thank you, uh, thank you, Oliver Townsend, for that. And yes, I did uh, flag that uh, Yope Dewitt is uh, sending in this one. Uh, he's chosen as his trigger word, and we we use that term loosely. Words word Ivy Bells. Now, Operation Ivy Bells. Uh, Yope says I love these types of stories. They remind me of the days that I would lie in bed under the blankets reading books with a flashlight about high tech weapons and daredevil raids. Okay, I know a little bit about Ivy Bells for various reasons because um, I'm a, well, I'm a nerd. Um, what was Operation Ivy Bells all about? Yeah, the there's a historic context and there's a very current context. Mm. Um, the historic context, the actual Operation Ivy Bells was a U.S. Navy um, operation during the Cold War to tap communication cables in initially in the pacific um but subsequently the same operations happening in the north in the arctic as well um so there were certain naval bases that that russia had um in the pacific and they were very remote and the communications cables for them went under the sea in places Mm -hmm. in order to get to to the other side of the bay and there's a it's, it's incredible these cables because these cables were internal cables there was no encryption or anything like that on the conversations it's plain text so you could just listen to them if you could find them and tap them and so they built the u.s navy built very specific submarines for doing this um true spy submarines uss halibut was the first one um i they started work in the 60s i think it was tapped in the 1970s really early 70s but there was a whole you know, series of U.S. Navy submarines uh, to do that. Only a nuclear submarine could 
really do what they were doing because of the ranges involved. But they were basically involved going, I want to say dangerously close, going really into Russia's backyard and laying a bug or a listening device, a tap, whatever you want to call it, onto a communication cable under the ocean. We're using divers from the submarine, especially trained ones. Presumably, you say a tap, but one, you can't just cut the cable and splice something in because that would be noticeable, right? Why did it break and magically reconnect? So uh, the Soviets would send their divers down, but also the submarine can't just hang around. These were quite big devices, mm -hmm. weren't they? Yeah, exactly. The very first generation, if you like, were large. They were in place. They didn't have to break the cable and splice anything in, they could wrap around the cable um, and listen. Um, I think they just had to be placed next to it, actually. But it's all the technology of the cable made a big difference. Yeah. Um, and they would record for months, and then another submarine, the same submarine or another submarine, would come and retrieve and replace so the tapes initially the whole thing yeah exactly the tapes the well the, the whole thing but then inside it was the tapes mm. and so initially it wasn't real-time listening but it was sort of six-month-old intelligence um but it was still very valuable um but of course they got more ambitious and this became a bit of a pain there was you know allegedly um the, the most extreme was in the north, uh, in the Arctic, where a U.S. Navy submarine laid a device. I don't know whether they spliced the cable or not, because they they potentially did. I, you know, when you say they, you can't do that, um, you know, I think well, people are quite ingenious. To. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm now thinking with 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 yeah. um, electronic cables. You've got mm. the electromagnetic detection. That's that's a thing yeah. you can do without splicing. Mm. With, with fiber optics, you kind of have to splice in somewhere. Well, they've got a different way to do that. Yeah, uh, um, I'll finish what they did because it, it's oh, sort yes. of interesting. Yeah, sorry. They literally put their device there and then laid a cable from their device all the way around Norway to probably to Iceland or somewhere like that and listened in real time or as good as real time without <laughs> having to go back and forwards. Um, and that was a remarkable feat, all done by a submarine covertly and could only be done by a submarine. Right? Um, the... Yeah, with fiber optic cables, it's a bit different. You can bend them. And the, the key word there ah. to look for is prism. So it's about letting ah. light escape and and reading that. Um, but I'm not a – I'm far from a technical expert on that. But it, it, it the, the question for any, anyone who's got a you know, good knowledge and, and a strong opinion, the question isn't whether they do it. The question is how they do it because they do. Right. Yes, people do. Of course – of course they do. That's the game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we can't talk about this whole process without mentioning American submarine NR1, which continues to fascinate me. Um, well, I, I could sum it up in a nutshell. It's a miniature four-per... Well, miniature. Small, four-person, nuclear-powered submarine with a little grabby hook on the front and a place to send divers out that was designed exactly for this sort of mission. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's one of the, about the same time in the 60s. And it was interesting because it was never a US Navy submarine in the proper sense. It was never commissioned as a US Navy. It was always kept off the books as a special project, but not, but obscured as being about rescuing. So the story at the time was this is a rescue sub or it's to do with rescuing. Um, and, and that's why it's called NR1, not USS 
whatever one. Mm. Um, and it'd be termed a midget submarine, although it's quite large on the outside. It's nuclear powered. It's got very small nuclear power plant, um, small crew. And it had manipulator arms at the front at a time when that was quite rare. Now we think of lots of things on the seabed, you know, remote operated vehicles in in mining you know in oil industry whatever have these same sort of devices but then it was rare it also had wheels on the bottom so instead of um you know it drive along the bottom and it could go much deeper about a going by memory it was a thousand meters three thousand feet but I, that was very deep at the time and still is very deep um and it served for a few years quite a few years and and eventually it just got worn out but it did have some disadvantages it although it's nuclear powered because it was so small it couldn't go very far on its own. It, tended, it generally had a, a ship, a boat above that either towed or carried it. And so it wasn't as covert and it was used more. It was used less. I mean, it's definitely used in some spy missions, I'm sure, but not the not as elaborate as the Ivy Bells ones, which were bigger submarines. Hmm. Something I found interesting about the story is that this sort of cable tapping work was so secret, even some of the people working on the project, like its support ship, uh, were told that it's about covertly collecting fragments from missile test launches from the floor of the ocean so they could analyse Soviet missiles, which which they did as well. Yeah. But uh, only, okay. only the four-person crew knew about what they were also doing down there, which is yeah, Look it up. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful story. I think there's a whole book about it, but I'll link to that in the notes. We presumably have equivalent beasties out there today, maybe not midget nukes, but... Uh, well, there are midget nukes out there. Um, oh, okay. Not, I mean, there's only... I mean, there's several navies with these capabilities, and these sort of capabilities that we talked about is interesting. Of course... Um, if you've heard about the Nord Stream um, attack or you know sabotage, and uh, everyone's worried about internet cables, the gas like this. pipeline These, from Russia yeah. to Northern Europe. Yes, exactly to Germany, and there was some some explosive placed on it, and there's still like who did it is still a debate, right? And uh, obviously Russia says that the Brits did it, and um, and everyone else thinks Russia did it. Um, yep. The except the internet, where apparently the US did it. But um, the oh, getting oh, away. Well, yes, obviously. <laughs> Sorry, yes, I don't, that's another whole rabbit hole. That's another <laughs> uh, rabbit hole. I leave that. I'm not going to. No one's going to change their minds there. Um, but the capabilities exist, and the country that does it the way, like NR1, is Russia. They they also built similar submarines a bit after America. Um, so definitely credit starting it goes to America. They built very similar submarines, but they what they did that is still quite cool is they solved the problem of this host, the mothership, being that by having a mother submarine, a host submarine. So they attached the, the deep diving submarine to the underside of the, the host submarine. And there's a f- now famous one called Le Charic, um, which can go probably deeper than NR1 could. Um, and it had a fire in 2019. Um, it's made of titanium, not steel. Um, it's really, it's an interesting sub. Uh, you know, if you know about subs, you might have heard about this. You, if you haven't, go look up Le Charic. But it is very much in the model of the NR1, and they still they're still building subs to carry these. Um, but US Navy also has the capability, but not in they discontinued the NR1. Other countries could do it, but they'd have to sort of improvise. Um, right. Possibly China can do it, but uh, but most countries. 
you'd start you know if they had the need they'd start figuring out ways to do it but it wouldn't be as elaborate or, or rather it was as expensive and sophisticated uh sophisticated platform web but as uh, as much of an investment and effort and time as the nl1 what we've seen and is it um the uss dallas which is one of the quote standard unquote american submarines that just had a, a whole section spliced into it for covert operations that's the uss jimmy carter is the one yeah ah uh, that's the special one in the u.s navy currently um the u.s jimmy carter it's a big submarine it's got a very secret but but obvious extra section in it um it's it's interesting because U.S. Navy, I mean, and no doubt it's very sophisticated, but if to put it into context, U.S. Navy has one submarine which does this. Um, Russia has three host submarines, um, which are all, each of them is bigger, much bigger than the Jimmy Carter, and they carry like an NR1 or equivalent underneath them, which Jimmy Carter clearly doesn't. Um, so in terms of how, you know, how much effort, resource, and focus Definitely Russia, much more than the US. Interesting. Uh, and just before we finish that segment, I realised the reason I was confusing the USS Dallas uh, with the USS Jimmy Carter, the USS Jimmy Carter, as you've just, just described, is the one for doing spooky things at the bottom of the ocean. The USS Dallas has been modified to carry special forces, Navy SEALs and the like, uh, to do covert operations and has equipment for that. So both both subs are heavily modified from their original configuration. Now, H, something I've heard again and again in the submarine debate here in Australia is the idea that these new subs, whatever they end up being, will be obsolete before they even enter service, and mostly that's because we'll have undersea drones that will do all of the things and we don't need crewed submarines. Is that a realistic vision? Even if we're looking ahead to 2050 or or whenever we actually finish building these? Yeah, I, I think such an absolute statement is not at all realistic um and it's not like to happen because submarines that are being built there's such an investment in them that even if it was logically true it would actually take a long time to change but it's not logically true really um yeah it's too extreme and too simplistic i you know uncrewed underwater vehicles are becoming a thing they're absolutely something the navy should have as a complement to to crewed submarines and the Royal Australian Navy is actually one of the big investors in it and I think doing something very smart they're partnering with com- companies outside Australia in Canada or US or whatever to, to make it happen which is smart because you know uh, Australia doesn't have that technology completely in-house um, but those submarines will be able to do the uncrewed ones will be able to do missions that the crewed ones can't but equally they'll not be able to do some of the missions that the crewed ones can um, because they're never likely to be as big, um, as heavily armed and so on. The, the trade-offs are always there. They're getting larger and one of the advantages of them is that they are logically going to be a lot cheaper to build and quicker to build. And for me, because I spend a fair bit of time, especially around the Ukraine war, thinking through the logistics and the procurement problems and how fast you can procure and put things in the water when you need them if there's a tension if you thought that war was six months 
time. If you suddenly had a, this is just hypothetical, but imagine that you foresee a war in on the horizon six months. Can you build a submarine? No, not even close. Could you, if you could build it, could you ret, you know recruit and train the crew? No, no chance. But an uncrewed submarine gets rid of a lot of that and partly because it's so much smaller even the largest ones that you don't need the same infrastructure to build them you can be built among industrial states and things like this and and that's a huge advantage so with that comes numbers and it become and comes a degree of expendability and you can take risks and deploy them and have missions especially offensive missions that you wouldn't risk a one of your super valuable submarines and 12 is a really good number it's a lot but um but they're still they're still super valuable and whereas a uncrewed underwater vehicle you're much more inclined to put it on the high risk mission and so you can be more adventurous in a, in military terms so there's a lot of advantages to these uncrewed ones but the downside is they're always like to be smaller with that they'll also be less powerful they'll be less good at um they have less processing power they'll because of autonomy they won't be able to do as complex missions because you've got to trust the ai to make the the right decisions which Mm -hmm. could be war starting or war ending decisions so there is if you want to hear more on that uh dear listener go back a few weeks where we spoke to uh professor toby walsh one of the world experts on the ethics of artificial intelligence who, who yeah. is leading leading the movement against autonomous weapon systems that can make the kill or no kill decision on their own fascinating stuff yeah. i mean that's, that's i i would say that they have you and this is i'll give you a defense analysis perspective on that because it's a really interesting point i'm very interested in the ethics and legalities of this but the problem you've got is that your adversaries almost certainly will put bombs on drones and so on and uh, and will use them in a in a combat way so if you don't you put yourself at a disadvantage and that's that's the problem it's sort of, it's more of the age old <laughs> argument in defense yeah. analysis if if we don't do it they will anyway whoever yeah. they might be and uh, you know on yeah. any, any side through history you can see that mm-hmm. that argument okay again that's another rabbit hole um <laughs> To finish on a happy vision of drones on this exact topic, status six, and I love the euphemism here, the oceanic multi-purpose system. It's Russia's yep. nuclear doomsday drone submarine, isn't it? Yeah, people didn't know that the Russians also use those sort of ridiculous acronyms and and labels for things that, that make no real sense. Um, yes, it's better described... And this is a, this is a long description, but it's better described as an intercontinental, nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed, autonomous torpedo. Wow. Um, lot to unpack there, but it's yeah. you might have noticed intercontinental. It it can go essentially forever. I mean, there, I think that there really are limits to that, but its range is so extreme that they could launch it from the North Pole and it could hit Sydney. There's no problem there, um, and. It's nuclear powered. That's the secret of its range and speed and things. It's nuclear armed. That's bad news. Um, there's a lot of m- nonsense about tsunamis and how powerful it is. It's powerful enough. It probably almost certainly doesn't create a tsunami, but you absolutely do not want one blowing up on a coastal on your coast, and certainly where cities like like Sydney and 
and Perth, and pretty much all the cities. Yes, current estimate is a two megaton warhead. That would be my estimate, and that's that's more uh, than enough to be a worry about it. Um, there's word that people you'll hear about a hundred megatons and cobo and tsunamis, and treat that as nonsense. But you you don't need to exaggerate it in order to know that you don't. It's a doomsday weapon. Um, but then you've got the other bit, autonomous, because it's got such a long range. It has to be. Uh, to a degree autonomous and that goes back to your ethics problem however fast it goes and again there's lots of nonsense about it going hundreds of knots i mean it probably goes about speed of a torpedo say 60 70 knots which is fast it's going to take days if not weeks to get to its target so it's as, as a second strike weapon it's it's like you know you've made a mistake you've created world war three you'll know about it in two weeks time um huh. and but there's how do you call it back? And if it can be called back, can that mean that you could actually try to disarm it? The adversary could disarm it. So it's quite complex from both. A, it's, it's a pretty good test case for the ethics problems. I, I mean, you, you said it, it would take, you know, a, a week or two to deploy to a target area, but presumably you could forward deploy them with a go signal. And for those of you who love Cold War movies, uh, the movie Failsafe comes to mind, or Doctor Strangelove for that matter. Um, that yes, uh, the go signal, but more importantly, the no-go signal. I, yeah, I think uh, the forward deploying bit is one of the, is a, a, is also a myth, but it's a, it's a bit harder to, it's, it's more of, it doesn't make sense from an analysis perspective. The main reason is the last word. The word that we hadn't mentioned was torpedo. Um, so ah. it, people think of it as a drone and often label it as a drone. And it does have drone parts to it because it has to be autonomous to be such long range. Um, and possibly it's it doesn't have any involvement in satellites, which might be a very a key part to why they built it. Um, so if you take out the satellites, they can still hit you. Um, but the uh, that's for navigation, the, I assume, just yeah, quietly. Yeah, exactly. So it navigates by the um, by the undersea train instead of the instead of satellites. Um, the key thing, though, is that they're also building submarines to carry it, and these submarines have torpedo tube type attachments. So it is a torpedo; it's a weapon. If if it was going to be forward deployed, if it was a drone you wouldn't ever need a submarine. You just launch it from your pier. And months in advance, you just like, you know, put it in the water. Why, why build many billion dollar submarine, whatever the Russian, you know, which is super expensive to Russia. They're building four of them. One of them's already in the water. The other one's late. The second one, the third, three and four might never get built at this rate. But, um, it, and they've already built a test submarine. Even think that through of all, like, the Royal Navy, the Australian, Royal Australian Navy, the Royal Canadian Navy. In fact, how many navies around the world can afford to build a submarine just as a test platform, a proper full-size submarine? Russia had to do that for this. They And it's it's only a test platform. It carries one of these weapons. Um, that Other countries can't afford that. Um, Russia can't afford it in some senses, but they did it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it tells you a lot about how it's going to be used. It's a torpedo. It's a weapon. Um, it is not going to be used like a drone. And the implication, the problems, if it was forward deployed and you discovered one in your backyard, um, you've got a political situation that didn't need to happen. Um, 
it also maintenance i don't think it runs forever it probably runs for a few weeks you know there's going to be it's an unshielded nuclear propulsion as well um so it's going to um or any shielding is minimal um so it leaves a a trail of radioactive water behind it so it's easy to trace um that doesn't matter if it's a weapon because knowing that it was there is too late right but um but it would, if you're going to loiter around an enemy pool or whatever, which is sort of scenarios people are giving it or being reconnaissance. No. Having said that, I don't think it's unreasonable that Russia or any other country would consider building nuclear powered drones, underwater drones. That's completely logical. People are talking about it in defense circles. It just wouldn't be Poseidon. Well, uh, we have a tradition of on this podcast of always ending on a quite a depressing note, um, <laughs> and I, I can't think of the any way of we can make this a happy ending to the end of the world, except that you said it's it's possibly not quite as atrociously bad as we might first think. Is, is that what we're up to? I, on on that weapon, yes. Um, it's, so it's now called Poseidon. So it used to be State of Six. Um, Yes, it is not as bad as people say. I, I think it has to be treated very, very seriously. Um, there's a lot more. We could speak a lot more about it. Um, I don't think Australia directly is the got to worry about it. But if there is talk of them deploying to to the um, to Pacific, and for sure, if they were threatening Australia with nuclear weapons, which let's face it, they're threatening other countries with nuclear weapons quite now. Things that we might not have believed would ever happen is happening. Um, yeah, take it very seriously. <laughs> Lovely. Again, yeah, beautifully Sorry. happy stuff, H. No, that, that, that's fine. We could obviously talk for hours. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, H.I. Sutton, thank you so much for your time. Yep, thank you. been very interesting. That's all the edict for now. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip or just tell your friends. The more people who listen, the merrier. Uh, there's still episodes to come this month. I'm not sure of the dates, but until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.